0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of How We Made It E-Commerce. I am your host, uh, Jasper Korea. Our guest today is Joe Heitzerberg, the CEO and founder of CrowdCal, a company that sells uh, meat online and uh, strives to create a connection between the farmer and the customer. They are the number one online retailer of authentic Japanese Wagyu beef uh, and have have maintained uh, 4.9% Star review rating on Google for four years. Phenomenal. Welcome, Joe, and uh, congrats on your success. Thank you. Maybe you could tell us the crowd cow story. How, how did the idea and the company come about?
1: Sure. Um, my co founder, Ethan, and I, Ethan really had the, the nexus of the idea, really, truly, really, you know, the light bulb moment. So we were having a conversation about a mutual friend who was kind of bragging to me about, like, oh, I'm getting my cow on Friday. I'm like, you're getting a cow. was like, no, we go to this. go to Woodby Island. If you're in Seattle, you know it's a beautiful place. And where there's this family that, you know, the great-grandfather settled the island with the original people who went there. So you get your best pick of the land. And, you know, growing cattle is really more about growing grasses. So if you have the best land, you've got the best nutrient-dense, protein-rich grasses for these cattle. And he takes care of everyone. And, oh, by the way, the meat tastes way better than anything you get in the grocery store. So when he described this connection he had with this person, multi-generational, this beautiful environmental, you know, the proper cattle farm, very natural out on this ideal place. know, he had this thing that I didn't have. Obviously, I was like, well, in the grocery store, I've got a little orange sticker that says special, but it's not special. But he had to drive a truck out there and take a ferry and buy 500 pounds of meat at a time. Super inconvenient. So I was talking to my co-founder, Ethan, because he also knew this guy. and. Ethan was like, you know, there should be a website where you can meet the farmer virtually and buy a piece of a cow. And it was the absurd idea of crowdfunding a cow is where we started. Well, yeah, we'll sell a cow on the website and you and 50 random strangers can actually buy a piece of it. And we'll, you know, be on your mobile phone on your couch and you can watch the video of the farmer, very Portlandia, learn everything about that farm and that animal, and then buy a piece of it, tap a button and it will show up at your front door. And so with that original idea of combining the connection and the emotionality of that better purchase and better product with the convenience of like online delivery, we thought that's kind of actually really cool. We, I want that, you know, I want that in my life. So we just got to vetting it and we found a lot of people thought it was a great idea and were willing to put their credit cards into our test website. And, you know, we sold our first cow in a day, had revenue from that and we're just off off and running immediately. So it was, five years since that day is today, you know, where we are, we are now, of course, much more than we don't sell one cow at a time anymore. We we're full assortment of really everything that you would want as a grocery shopper, everything that's on your shopping list for grocery store at the, in the meat drawer, beef, pork, chicken, seafood, we've got bison, we've got lamb, everything you'd want is there in one place, a tap away to get it to your door. But we also have the transparency back to where exactly did it come from, who raised it, why, what's special about it. And then we've got this assortment that ranges all the way from that grocery store all the way up to, as you mentioned, the most exquisite Wagyu that you can imagine. You know, we actually today debuted Kobe beef from Hyogo Prefecture, the the most famous of the the Japanese uh, high-end Wagyu. And we've got a huge assortment from other places in Japan. And as you mentioned, we're the number one seller of Wagyu in America. So it's pretty... uh, small piece of the business, but because it's such a niche, we're, we're a pretty big piece of that, of that business overall, but we've got, you know, whether you want local farms or you want sustainable, or you want something to feed the kids on a Wednesday grocery list items, we've got it all really
0: wide assortment. That's a fascinating story. So did you, did you have a formal crowdfunding campaign to sell this first cow or you just set up a test website? Well, we
1: were both engineers by background. And so, yeah, we built our own, you know, because we, we were thinking through like, uh, you know, obviously we wanted to build something that looked real and tested it, but the Kickstarter can't, uh, platform really doesn't, didn't do what we wanted. And we knew we'd, if it was successful, we'd want to own that and, and maybe merchandise in different ways or offer subscriptions. So we, we built it ourselves. We wanted total control over the user experience too, so that you could have the, The text message go out at the right moment to reassure someone, you know, your box is being shipped to you in a heat wave. And that's why we put this much ice in it. So you as a first-time buyer know like, oh, I have nothing to worry about. And so that's why, you know, we have the 4.9. We have many five-star reviews and very like a, I think there were 10 or 15 not five-star reviews on Google. So it's like 4.99. And that's because the attention to detail on anticipating every concern proactively that a customer might have in that customer experience is something we started baking in from the very early days. That is phenomenal. And so how, how much did you sell the cow for? Yeah, that first one was about $5,500 in revenue total.
0: So the first 24 hours. And the cow cost you how much?
1: I can't remember on that one. I think that one. you know, back in the day, we were negotiating one-off cow for cow. I I kind of remember that was probably $2,500 cow or something like that total somewhere in that range. But, but I, you know, and then there's other costs. You got to pay the butcher and there's yield and, you know, there's, there's ways that, that, that raw product good, you're not selling every dollar that you purchased. You know what I mean? Right.
0: Right. So, I mean, you could have been profitable on that first day.
1: Well, we were bootstrapped for the first about a year and a half. And so we were, you know, we had both paid into the company some money, to just have some expenses taken care of because you can't start with literally zero. But we did bootstrap for the first year and a half.
0: Then you subsequently raised funds. And I noticed that uh, two of your investors are Ashton Kutcher and Joe Montana. How did you snag them as investors? Have they helped you acquire customers? And can I order an Ashton Kutcher try to cut? <laughs> well, the, both of those
1: guys came in at the, well, actually Joe Montana came in at the seed round. Ashton came in at the A round. Joe has a fund, um, Liquid 2 Ventures, and does lots of deals. So he's done deals in my friend's companies. And so really that one was just on the circuit of, hey, we're raising a seed round and we're talking to different people. We wanted some Bay Area DNA and connections. And so we had prioritized meeting those guys and they just came up as an intro. It's like, oh, that's Joe Montana's fund. So you find yourself in San Francisco in an office sitting across the table from Joe Montana. As, as a kid, you remember seeing him in commercials on TV. It's a little bizarre. But then you hear this very eloquent, very intelligent man asking you great questions about your business because now what he does is absorb himself in the world of investing. And that's how Joe Montana just was on the circuit of seed finance, financing and he has a fund. Ashton was um, different. We hadn't talked to Ashton. He has a fund, Sound Ventures, does a ton of deals. And we hadn't talked to him when we were doing the A round. In fact, we were towards the end of the A round, you know, where we'd had, I think, a term sheet. We were negotiating. We were bringing in some other investors and existing seed people and figuring out who was going to fill out the round. And I, not kidding, I got a text message from Ashton on my phone. Um, And it was like, I don't know how he got my mobile number, but it was like, hey, Joe, it's Ashton Kutcher. I don't know if you knew this, but I actually worked at a butcher shop after high school and I love what you guys are doing and I love the talk. So it was just that. And, uh, and so we got him in as part of the A round and then he subsequently re-upped and invested more ahead of the B round. So they've been, a, they've been a great partner. Your question, is there an Ashton tri-tip? No, there's not enough. We don't play the celebrity card too much on our merchandising. Maybe we shouldn't actually go and play that harder. Um, I, I think, um, you know, that's, that's something we should probably play a little harder. We haven't, relied on those guys for promotional we think of them mostly as investors not as like brand ambassadors or you know they're the business deal but not a marketing deal if you know what I mean
0: I see you say he worked uh, at a butcher shop in high school Ashton Kutcher the butcher not not too bad sounding well he's also on the ranch you know the show the ranch uh-huh. and
1: they you know he did feature us in the show uh the ranch so
0: they're they're not averse to To you using their names, it's just that you haven't done it.
1: No, I think you have to be, you you, you want to use their names in 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 appropriate ways. And so we're sensitive to the relationship there. Um, But they've promoted us. I mean, like I said, Ashton put us on the ranch and there was an episode where Crowd Cow was actually featured in the storyline in two episodes, actually. So that was fun.
0: Yeah, yeah, so I learned from your website that you, you're not simply a marketplace that connects farmers and customers. You actually go to the ranches, inspect the product, taste the meat before yeah. featuring it on CrowdCow. Uh, can you talk a little more about this? Uh, obvi- today, you're a venture backed company, and um, I know VCs value marketplaces highly. They probably want you to build the biggest company possible. What do they think about your practice of having people physically go to the farms?
1: Our vision has always been that this is a big enough category, you know, $200 billion in meat. So when we started the company, everyone was talking about men's razors, Harry's, and, and, and uh, Dollar Shave Club. That's a $7 billion category if you include hair gel and stuff for men, right? And so when we're talking about meat, it's a huge category. So we can have a very long-term view on, on it and the vision. And that vision has always included becoming and being a true marketplace. Why cannot a rancher who wants to list themselves, transact, do it in their local market in a way that we never have to physically meet with them. So you're right. We do meet them. We're a curated marketplace. We're building a brand around quality and trust and transparency. And we're exceptionally high standards in terms of who we work with because we want the most sustainable producers, the highest quality meats, et cetera. And we want the best prices for our customers. So that filters the world down because we wanna build an exceptional brand for customers. Secondarily, but that's the way to build the brand. Build the brand from a position of strength and quality, build the loyalty, build the customer base and the capability set so that we can turn on a marketplace over time. It's hard to cold start a marketplace. Now, I think what, what I've learned, especially in the market we work in, perishables, delivered, meat, it's especially hard to create a marketplace. Not just the cold start problem, but it's not a finished goods marketplace. Ranchers grow animals. They don't produce steaks. They don't know how to ship them to you. You know, if you want to ship several hundred pounds of orders once a week, hiring the labor, paying for the dry ice, organizing the shipments, out-of-box experience, not to mention customers don't want to buy just your steak from one farm. They want to buy an assortment from a bunch of places to fill the meat drawer. So we're aggregating a capability set and producing a capability set so that in the vision we could have a marketplace where an individual farm could tap into the economies of scale the customer base and the conveniences that we provide through that platform in a way that would be better than if we cold start a marketplace from just being virtual better for customers better for farms better economics so in the vision it's there but I'm I'm kind of explaining why that that takes time but we can afford a long term view a, we're the only ones building a supply chain of our own. Everyone else sources from a distributor. And B, we're building all these capabilities in-house so that we have the ability to expose them as a marketplace. I think it would be pretty tough at this point for someone to catch up with us when we've been heads down on this exact vision for five years with no change.
0: That, that, that's interesting. So when you talk of farmers not having this capability, expertise to to pack and, and search ice. So at CrowdCow today, you have a team that... It slices up the meat. So my question is, what do you get from the farmer? A dead carcass and then you do everything else? or? I love it.
1: Yeah, I mean, farms raise animals. Then we have to coordinate with them in their area. So we have a supply chain with partners. That is, you know, slaughter and butcher capabilities okay. in reg- you know, different places around the country. Um, and so we are coordinating the supply chain with everyone, i.e. setting and administering standards. Around cutting and trim and labels and yield and tracking and invoicing, and we're providing a platform to make it all work efficiently, so that everyone who's in that supply chain benefits. And that's something that we're controlling through our technology and our process and our contracts.
0: But does that make sense? Yeah, that does. That does. Um, you, earlier, you spoke of you know getting the best prices for customers. Like, how much more expensive is your product compared to to regular grocery store prices? And do most of your customers use you exclusively as their meat supply? Or is it more like a special occasion thing when they have a company over and they want to grill?
1: Our goal is to be the one and main meat supply in the person's life. We want to fill the meat drawer. So whether that's, here's my grocery store checklist and it's my special occasions, we want all of that. So that's our goal um, as a company. When we started, you one cow at a time. Now you're starting at the premium and you've only got a subset of proteins. And so over time, through assortment and efficiencies, we've come closer and closer to being able to really achieve that goal for a mass audience. But that is absolutely our goal. And so just to give you an idea, this year, since the beginning of the year till now, we've come down in prices on all the core categories by over 10% because of scale and negotiating and sourcing. And so so we're getting ever closer and ever ever more advanced in terms of being able to meet that need for the greatest number of
0: people. So today, what's the premium on price for your product?
1: If you're a happy Whole Foods customer and that's all you ever shop at, and you're, you're kind of dubious to buy your meat from anywhere else because you're worried about the quality and the environmental concerns and other factors, we would be a great alternative to that because you won't be paying more and it'll be much higher quality, much more convenient.
0: I see, got it. So about Whole, Whole Foods price, I thought it would was more than that. That's great to know. <laughs> how many customers do you have? How much revenue? You can you can give us ranges.
1: Tens of thousands of customers at this point in terms of subscribers, low tens of thousands. We've grown that from, from almost nothing at the beginning of the year. So that's been great. In terms of your, your point about how many people are really using you for all their meats, that's becoming a big number. It's almost half the business now. And then the
0: revenue is the mid eight figures. Thanks for sharing that. I I noticed you also have subscription boxes. How big is that part of the business? Everyone's trying to build a subscription box business.
1: It's gone from about half or from zero to about half of the business within this year as we've promoted it. We gave birth to a membership model with a subscribe and save option. We're not pivoting or becoming a subscription box business at all. We're, again, presenting this unbeatable assortment for all occasions in your life and wonderful varieties to try why would we want to force fit you to like here's five things you're going to get every month and you have no choice over what they are like everyone else does right so we're saying hey if you want to enjoy this incredible assortment but you also want the convenience of just have it show up or have us curate it for you cool well we can add that in and we'll, we'll give you some benefits five percent savings and free shipping if you do that so that's our model and that's been very successful so far. With like I said, about half of the business has become subscription over the past six to eight months.
0: I'm curious, what's the retention rate for the subscription business?
1: Given we launched at the beginning of the year and it's only six or eight months in, it's pretty. It's too early to really tell. I would say it's trending really good. We ask our investors for benchmarks across different categories and similar things, uh, and we we ask for what's what does awesome look like, and that's what we use as our as our internal benchmark and. You know, so far we're we're tracking to uh, awesome or like the awesomest or pretty dang awesome. So I'll put it
0: that way. That is great because everyone's trying to build a subscription business, but the churn rates are very high. The yeah. customer complaints are really bad about forced not it, being able to unsubscribe. So that I think that's, it's an amazing, it's an amazing puzzle to solve as a
1: product person and a business person because both the finances as well as the customer experience are so intertwined with you know all the levers you've got and experimentation it's it's a system dynamics problem that's very complicated and it's fun and and there's a lot of um what do they call the uh the evil patterns you know out there
0: <laughs> yeah I,
1: that that are ever so tempting but are you know that you might find a short-term benefit but you're going to find a long-term detriment and you've got to make those kind of strategic choices when you're designing your experience uh, and you got to have a long-term view on it i think ultimately do you want to build a lasting brand at a big company or do you want to just make a few extra dollars next quarter and those trade-offs can be hard when you're you know a startup uh with, with limited finances and you got to be scrappy so
0: right what are your main customer acquisition channels if you're able to share what percentage of your revenue spent on marketing
1: only around 10% of uh, revenue spent on marketing we try to keep it to that level just to be pretty conservative i think overall you know we'd rather be a profitable and growing company than a growing and unprofitable company and so we we run the business that way secondly you know obviously the the paid channels that everyone uses google and facebook work really well and we've used we have a lot of experience with those Like everyone, probably, we also have a goal internally uh, to establish very strong, you know, uh, number two or number three channel that isn't one of those two, right? So we've got a number of different channels. Some are working already pretty well. We're trying to scale up and we've got a bunch of experiments. So if you look across YouTube Influencer Podcast, SMS Commerce, and SMS Lead Gen to affiliate to uh, partner marketing programs of various kinds to direct mail. We're we're doing experiments across all of those right now to understand, you know, which of these could potentially be that, you know, in our playbook, the the number two and number three. We'd love we'd love a, a story where the number two and the number three channel aren't Facebook and Google, right? Mm-hmm. Facebook or Google.
0: Yeah, that is a great vision to have because being held hostage by by those two <laughs> will they I
1: mean, be your account deleted you know they built incredible uh, platforms that are you know infinitely scalable and and highly measurable but you know you've got Mark Zuckerberg and Sergey Brin with their deep learning AI engineering teams going to figure out how to take all your profit. so you've got to diversify your 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 growth strategy as, as, a, as a DDC or a B2c company away from just those two or you will lose in the end that's my belief.
0: That is so true. There's, there's a term I've, I've heard used about making a charitable donation to the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. <laughs> when when you spend money and, and it's not profitable because Facebook ads has become so expensive now. You mentioned SMS lead gen. I've seen a ton of reports about how high the open rates are, but I haven't really seen anyone who's produced consistent revenue volume. How's that working for you, the yeah. SMS lead gen?
1: Yeah, I mean before that, just briefly on the. The Google and, and Facebook, I will say, part, you know, not to be just one sided cynical. I think they are great platforms and they can work really well. And I think the onus is on the brand to be really creative and how they use those and uh, to have you know wonderful on site and you know uh, retargeting programs that are not just you just don't blindly use the tool. If you if you use any tool you know in a bad way, you're gonna. It's hard to stand out. It's hard to compete. It's hard to convert. It's hard to all that stuff. So I think the onus when, that they are scalable and measurable is a wonderful thing. And then if you can apply your creativity to that, you can make them work at scale for a long, long time. I, I don't want to sound like they are, uh, you know, evil platforms or something like that, but, <laughs> but um, on the SMS, you know, we're, that's the one where we're, we've, we've are probably not even ankle deep into that as a channel. I think my, our early point of view is that the risk is, well, Hey, you've got to onboard people. People get our SMSs for transactional because, you know, your order's out for delivery and these kinds of things. And they can use our SMS to get real-time support. But you can't just flip on promotional messages over SMS. People will be like, what are you doing to me? So there's a little bit of a, like, how do you onboard people? And then there's a question of, there's a portion of your, re- of your traffic that's mobile. Why capture email? Why not just capture mobile and go from there? Begin the relationship with, with, with mobile. And if you get a higher percentage of people opting in, you got more to work with. So there's a theory there that hey, that could yield more in the end. But then to your question, what is the SMS experience going to be? I think people who are using are using it in a highly promotional way, like oh, this thing is now twenty percent off or forty percent off. That's the, when I, as a consumer, that's what I've experienced, and I'm not sure that's really our brand to do that. So we've got to figure out what are the offers that are worth getting the text message. They've got to be worth getting that you're not going to get over other channels. And they've got to not break the bank in terms of how we do it in terms of the cost of acquisition. They've got to net out to a, a profitable place. So that's our challenge. we got to figure that out. But I think there's potential in it. There's definitely an opinion that like, yeah, you, you might, you know, turn it on and milk for a lot of revenue and then people start unsubscribing and it kind of goes away. And I think the feedback from a lot of people who've tried SMS as any kind of channel have seen it that way as a temporary incremental revenue blip and then people kind of unsubscribe, right? So, and that may, you know, I, I don't know exactly how to avoid that. I'd be curious if you've come across, you know, who, who would you consider
0: is using SMS most effectively for both acquisition and retention? I haven't come across a true sustained success, uh, short-lived promotions I've seen. And that's why I was curious how you guys are using it. What are other challenges in your business? You mentioned building capabilities to dress and pack meat and Diversifying off of uh, facebook and, and google what what are other challenges you would say your business has currently?
1: A lot of the stuff that you don't see on the website that would be under the hood would be you know obviously we've got initiatives around personalization in our merchandising and showing people the things they are going to want to most see because now we have this huge assortment. we've got all these customers. we can do a better job of personalizing so that's under the hood approaches to make that better is a That's a a current um, objective. And then on the back end, innumerable getting perishables shipped to you. You know, we went through this COVID period where the meat companies were shutting down, demand online spiked overnight, and we were able to keep up and keep shipping orders because we've built this platform that allows us to manage the whole supply chain from the sources and the processors to inventory receiving, pick, pack, and ship without skipping a beat. We never had to put up a wait list. We never had to delay people's orders. Not some of them got delayed a little bit, but on the whole, like on the average delay was less than a day (laughs) across everybody as we spiked because we control that whole platform. So that's, but that's continuously a challenge and an opportunity. How do you fortify and take that platform to the next level? You know, we've got inventory, like where at the scale we're currently at, can we improve efficiency by automating even more? Right. And we could, we could, scanning temperature and weight checks along and putting that in the data and using that and you know, looking at the data to negotiate vendor stuff or to optimize LTL shipments into the facilities that we've got. All this stuff just becomes this, as you reach each new scale point, there's a whole another unlock of problems and automation and negotiation. Like when it was the very first cow, I borrowed a warehouse space for half a day from a friend and the boxes showed up, we packed and then we left. And then it was like, okay, we're borrowing space in a butcher. And then how do we build tools so that we can hire people to do the packing so I don't have to do the packing? At every sort of scale point, you reach this, okay, here's the next set of things I can do that provide an unlock for efficiency and, and scale. So we've, we've, we constantly have those at every point in the, in the scale.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I mean, building a vertically integrated operation, is, is, is I imagine, is tough. But you seem to have pulled it off.
1: You're sourcing product on Alibaba and then you ship it to like it fulfilled by Amazon. You don't have logistics, right? But you have a easy to do business that a lot of people could replicate. So in our business, because it's perishables and because the producer produces live animals, not wrapped steaks, all that's in between and getting it to the customer. So there isn't like a platform I can just go rent. So we had to build it, but that becomes intellectual property and capability. Of the company that's unique and valuable to a lot more
0: people than just our business i see who are the two entrepreneurs from the e-commerce age so maybe starting mid-90s that you admire most and briefly tell us why
1: starbucks you know and howard schultz because and that's great mid-90s right i don't know when they turned on their e-commerce they had a offline retail business but even today, their order-ahead mobile experience and their point system for loyalty are absolutely best in class for any, as compared to any Silicon Valley-only elite team-created thing. And they're a big old, you know, offline company. So I've got to respect whenever I see that. That's absolutely um, amazing, and 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 I admire that a lot. And I admire Howard Schultz's whole story. I don't know if you know his story, but came from a background with a lot of hardship early on and not a lot of money from his family and upbringing. And then just the perseverance and, you know, hearing no 89 times in a row and just keep on going. And you've got to have that as an entrepreneur.
0: So I take inspiration in those stories. I've read Howard's book. Yeah, he he has an amazing life story. And
1: when I see brands execute their vision really well, I admire that in e-commerce, you know, when you've got a brand that somehow achieves like a, a love level and an aura. I'm always impressed with that. I mean Apple has that, right? But I'm thinking about like Warby Parker and Harry's and some of these these things that came out and just nailed their thing or the away luggage brand. They suddenly get this like higher order halo of brand love. They've just got a, the messaging dialed in and the experience and the brand and everything. I really
0: admire when that when that happens because it looks so simple, but it's not easy, right? True, true. So in closing, what's one piece of e-commerce advice you, you'd like to share with our audience? Perhaps something you wish someone had told you when you were, you were getting started. And then because of the nature of your business, uh, maybe share one grilling tip that, that most amateurs don't know about that's easy to use to impress your friends.
1: Yeah. The one thing that you must know really well is the CAC LTV Payback Formula. And you've got to obsess over those aspects of the business. So there's definitely a thing, especially having just said, like, I admire these brands, right? Is as an entrepreneur, you may not have the skills on the quant or the brand creative side, but, or you may have both or some or whatever, but at some point you're going to want, you're going to have to have leadership for marketing that you hand off or product. And you're going to be faced with a choice. Do I want quant or do I need this brand? Because I admire these brands that are loved and I got to have the customer experience. So do I want a creative person or do I want a quant? I think my advice, and I wish someone had told me what it would be like, get the quant. That's what my advice would be. I think ultimately it's much more important to have the quant DNA be the center of the company and you can hire in supplementary on the brand side, if that makes sense. The grilling tip would be you can cook from frozen. So not a lot of people know this, but just take a frozen New York steak and take it out of your freezer and put it on the counter. And then, you know, set your table and do all that while it sort of surface thaws. The surface is a little bit thawed. It's a frozen steak. Season it with salt and pepper. Get a cast iron pan and heat it up to medium high heat. Put a light olive oil that has a low or a high smoke point. And right when that starts to smoke and you think it's too hot, take the frozen steak and just sear it like crazy. Searing and just almost like you're burning the outside of the steak. You want a crust on it. One minute per side. Take your tongs, sear the edges, and then throw that whole pan into the oven at 300 degrees for like seven minutes and you will have the perfect medium rare new york steak hero chef style
0: thank you for that tip i've got to try it next time we have a barbecue thank you for doing this i enjoyed talking to you and congrats on your success
1: thanks for having me jasper it's really good to reconnect